Hello everyone, I'm Jo. And I'm Melissa. And this is a podcast where we chat to people who practice Nichiren Buddhism within the SGI. We're not official spokespeople. These are just informal chats about what Buddhism is and why chanting Nam Renge Kyo works. Welcome to Buddhist Chats. Hello. Um, today we are meeting with Naomi Stafford, who Joe and I have both known well since she started practicing. I think is that right? Um, this is so exciting being here on your podcast. <laughs> this is really exciting. <laughs> um, so I started practicing twelve thirty in two thousand and fourteen. But I didn't start coming to meetings until well into 2015 because I thought I didn't know about them. And then when I found out about them, I was a bit frightened of them. And it took me about three attempts to go to a meeting. And um, yeah, so then I started in Dalston Junction with you, Melissa. And you looked after me there and let me come around to your house early in the morning and drink really strong coffee when I had a hangover. And then I very reluctantly moved where I found Joe. And then I became less reluctant once I'd found Joe. We were very delighted to have you. But did you did you move because of a geographical? Was it a geographical thing? Yeah. So I moved. Yeah. So I moved into fall out with all the. No, I fell out with everyone in Dyson Junction. <laughs> they asked me to leave. And um, but then I remember being gently told there were reasons why you should practice where you live. And I think it took until someone asked me to become district leader to actually start practicing at a new district. You become very attached. So I sort of feel like so I have so many questions. And the, the one we tend to start with, which I think we're, we've sort of started when you started, but not why you started. Like, how did you meet the practice and what grabbed you about it? How did it all sort of get going with you? So... I think quite similarly to a lot of people, I was in quite a bad way with my own like mental health. And it was three years after my dad had died. And I think I had what I call delayed grief. And everything was spiraling quite rapidly out of control. I remember typing to my mum on MSN Messenger, I think I'm going crazy. And my mum replied, oh, you've always been a bit loopy, darling. And I was like, how else do I say it? And um, and I just started writing as well. And I found my notebooks when I moved house the other day. And I was writing a lot about Jesus. And I don't come from any religious background at all. I mean, I went to a Church of England primary school, and I grew up in the countryside. So there's a sort of Christian sort of, but I don't have a particularly religious family at all. But I was clearly just desperate to find out something and I didn't know what that was. I don't think I would have called myself an atheist, but I don't think I would have called myself agnostic. I just didn't know what it was. And I, even though this is obviously an atheist religion. Anyway, I went to record a radio play at a friend's house and she'd left open her Gohonzon, which now I know was a trick. And I was like, oh, what's that? And then she told me about the, no, she told me about Nichiren Buddhism and gave me a Namya Harenge Kyo card. And then I chanted for the next six months on my own in the bathroom really early in the morning with my flatmate and my partner, who's now my husband, thinking I was completely losing it. And then six months later, I saw the same woman and I said, oh, I've been chanting. And she was like, what? Oh, my goodness. We have meetings. We have this thing. There's an organization called the SGI. And, and then it just went from there, really. 
I think that's quite often the case that people I know personally who've started chanting are quite often the ones that I wasn't necessarily particularly focused on. You just kind of casually mention it and, and then they go off and do it. And I think people approach it in completely different ways. For me, chanting, I don't think I could have, I could tell you what any of the benefits were that I got in those first six months, other than the act of getting up and doing it was as you know it's that little hope machine the act of it was being hopeful which was taking me out of that place which was quite a hopeless place but for some people it's reading a book isn't it and they don't want to sit down and chant but they will read something and it will for me every time I read anything I was like I already believe that and so many people say that when they first start practicing don't they when they hear about some Buddhist theory and they're like it doesn't feel new it doesn't feel like something I'm having to reach at to try and believe in it's like it feels very much like the rules that you already live by not rules you know what I mean the stuff Mm -hmm. you already sort of believe what was your first meeting like um so it did take three attempts I went and then left before I walked in anywhere and then this woman actually saw me outside of the third one and it was in someone's bedroom And I can remember every single person sat around that room and leading it was a woman who'd been chanting for years and years and years and years. And she chanted really fast. And I was like, oh, my God, where? I was like this. And then everybody was doing gongyo off by heart. And it felt completely surreal. It was a women's meeting. It was a young women's meeting being led by a woman, a woman in the women's division. And um, I remember going home and trying to Facebook stalk someone at the meeting because I felt like I knew her. We're good friends now. And we've since we have no connection. We've never met before. But that's sort of the feeling I got there. And I was like, I feel like I know everybody already. And it wasn't particularly like, you know, people aren't particularly, they weren't particularly welcoming in that you weren't unwelcome. It was just like you get on with it, you sit down, you join in or you don't join in. You can speak if you want everything's just accepted there was no sort of massive like wow you're new come on in it was just and I liked that because I didn't want a fuss to be made out of me because I was too anxious for anyone to like sort of bring any attention to me it was just yeah they're always different though every meeting's different isn't it I certainly at my first meeting just wanted to listen and I did join in the chanting and I just thought it was the most amazing noise but I found everything else about it quite overwhelming Um, There were a lot of people there. But then I did just, even though I couldn't get out of there fast enough and sort of almost ran out and didn't want to talk to the person who'd invited me, I walked home with this feeling, this just really quiet, soft feeling of hope inside me that was such a surprise, actually, because I'd been feeling quite anxious the whole way through it. And then I left there thinking, I'm actually going to be fine. And I'm I'm an all right person and I probably deserve to be happy. And I remember just thinking, oh, that's quite nice because I hadn't felt like that for a while. So yeah, it sort of crept up on me. And unlike you two, all I wanted to do was read books about it and I didn't really want to chant. So yeah, as you said, Naomi, everybody's different. Everybody has their own route into it. I mean, I don't know if you remember me right at the beginning, Melissa, because I would just speak because I chatted so much in those meetings after that first one and then a discussion meetings. But I just spoke about everything and I just had no filter. It was absolutely everything that was going on in my life. I completely like just spilled out of me and I go home and 
almost always have like like thrown into anxiety. It was very hard to pinpoint why I kept going to meetings and why I continued chanting. Because everybody says when you first start practicing, you get all of this benefit and you chant for, I don't know, um, earthly desires and all of these things happen and then you just deepen your faith and things go wrong and da 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 But for me, if people asked me, why did you start and why did you carry on? I don't really know the answer because it brought up so much stuff. I mean, now I sort of know because it was helping me and that's what I needed to do. But at the beginning, I definitely didn't get all these conspicuous benefits that people speak about. And I remember saying to someone, oh, I feel awful after a discussion meeting. <laughs> and people being like, no, that's now you, I feel high as a kite. Like you sort of get on your bike and you're like, like it's sort of ridiculous how <laughs> infallible you feel afterwards. But not at the beginning. That's so interesting because it just shows you how inscrutable people are, how difficult it is to read people. Because although I could absolutely tell that you had a lot of really deep stuff to go through and you were grieving, you know, you were having also lost my dad at a young age. I know what those first three years are like and how raw, but it seemed to me that that was probably the benefit in itself, just being able to talk about it and thrash out with people. And I remember you sharing things quite early on that you felt very differently about, like you were able to see people's tendencies very clearly. And I just felt like you had this incredible seeking spirit. I just learned so much about myself. I think that's my benefit. I used to um, get to the end of the meeting and then sort of hang around awkwardly because everyone knew each other. Everyone was friends. And I had this real thing about friendships and that you know, I'm not cool enough to I'm not liked by people and and all of this stuff. And it, it and I still have it. I still recognize it. I just look at it for what it is a bit better now. But it's taken literally years to begin to even recognize this stuff and like try and transform it. And that's something I've been chanting about this year of I've been really chanting about because I'm chapter leader for South Hackney. And I've really chanted because when I leave this district or this chapter, I will I'll step down from that role. So I've really chanted to understand what it's meant to me and what I've learned and what it's given me. And truthfully, it's given me friends. And that's ridiculous. That's not like and that. But that is that is it. Like that is that is, but that is Kosen Rufu. I almost want to whisper it. That is Kosen Rufu. That is how we begin, you know, changing the world is making friends with whoever is in your district or your community. I always say to people, I was like, fine, you don't want to be a Nichiren Buddhist. Well, go and organize a discussion meeting with a load of people and, and share what's going wrong and share what's going well and have equal respect for both of those things because that's just the best environment. And that's just so important. And I wish everybody had access to something like that. I'm really paranoid that that's made me sound like I have no friends or I didn't have any friends before. Um, I have wonderful friends who I adore. And what I was trying to say is that it's made me a better friend and it's taught me how to taught me how to make friends better, if you see what I mean. Um, we talk about treasuring um, treasuring the person in front of you in Buddhism. And that's how you make friends. You treasure the person in front of you. You don't sit worrying about what they think of you I think that's what I mean yeah I yeah I know what you mean about the friends thing it, it was it's been a surprise actually how 
brilliant the people are that I've met through this practice. And um, yeah, I remember after my first meeting, just running away, and and that that awkward thing as well. Which is just normal, isn't it, when you're in a situation with people that you don't know? But, but yeah, what was that? It was the third episode of Buddhability, that really good episode with that psychotherapist talking about Buddhism and psychotherapy, and him saying he didn't particularly want to be a Buddhist, but he just really rated the people, and that's been my experience actually up through throughout that I just met these marvelous people. And actually, conversely, I would say that what's been really interesting for me is sometimes I come across people that I find challenging and actually they don't say things that particularly resonate with me or they say things that actively enrage me. And I always, you know, you just chant for the happiness. You just kind of think, OK, what's that about? That's saying more about me than them. You ask yourself those difficult questions about what that's actually triggering. And then you just give it some welly, give it some daimoku and just chant for their happiness whatever that might look like. But eventually you do just find this really honest kernel of respect for them. And and I guess, crucially, compassion. That That's the thing, isn't it? That's the secret, is that even if you don't end up liking everybody, it's not about that. I remember somebody saying to me, well, you can't like everybody. And it's, that's not the point. The point is respecting everybody and just kind of finding a way to honestly wish them well and want to see them thrive. That's part of the reason, going back to why it's important to practice where you live. That's why we're encouraged to do that, because much as we might want to stay in our comfort zone with the people that we're really familiar with, that we know we get on with. When you move, the point is you're supposed to bring the Buddhahood there, you know, where it's needed. You've got to sort of battle those new relationships, not battle them, but you've got to deal with your own tendencies to not like change and embrace it. Yeah. And also that point about not liking someone. It's about taking complete responsibility at the same time as not taking everything so personally. And there's something about not liking someone and not believing in their potential to be a really wonderful human being, which is just so unfair, isn't it? Because I think, oh, God, there's been times when I have not been a likable person, even if it's just because I'm really low and unhappy and I might be judgmental and moody and, and or trying too hard to fit in. So you end up saying things which aren't even your opinion because you haven't thought about them for long enough and all of this stuff which is basically a description of me seven years ago and that's what buddhism does it's that belief in everybody's potential no matter what they're saying and doing right now to be good to create value and be happy isn't it uh sorry guys my neighbor started playing the piano so um you might hear a little bit of tinkling in the background um i know what you mean amy it is unfair to well basically to write someone off because of something that they've said in in one moment. So I, I don't know, there was a meeting recently where someone said, would you judge someone or negatively think think badly of someone who you heard being a bit of a dick at a party? And I thought, mm, yes, I would. <laughs> and actually the opposite of that, I suppose, is, is this practice where one of the kind of basic tenets of what Nichiren says is that everyone has this enormous potential. And I think that's why discussion meetings work so well really because you're sitting next to someone for probably only an hour and a half a month but over if you live in the same place for any length of time you really get to know somebody and so someone who sort of does turn up in your district who you might think you've got absolutely nothing in common with over the months of listening to people talk about what's going on for them and how they're dealing with life 
you just develop a really lovely friendship with people and quite often it, it, it might be people that you thought you had absolutely nothing in common with to start with and I think that's the beauty of a discussion meeting and also you know I can think of times in my life where I've been a pretty tricky person to be around because of well you know you you made a list Naomi but for for whatever reason I was really struggling and I'm so grateful to the people that didn't walk away and um and write me off because I was being a nightmare I suppose what sort of always uh, continu- continues to intrigue me is 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 the Nam Yoringe Kyo bit because you can have a group therapy session where everybody's terribly nice to each other and you're all growing together and getting to know each other and it's a lovely place to be. But with this, you you sort of throw Nam Yuharinge Kyo into the mix and that does something, well, something huge. And I've and even though I've been practicing quite a long, well, yeah, a long time, and I totally believe in it, I still sometimes wonder why, why it is, why chanting this repetitive phrase with a bunch of people or on your own has such a powerful effect. I'm going to jump in with an attempt, which is paraphrasing something I've heard somebody else say for sure. But I love this idea that essentially Daimoku, which is Nam Yohorengikyo, is the opposite of what your brain habitually likes to tell you, which is that you're not good enough. So like what my inner voices like to say the moment I wake up is kind of oh dear, it's probably going to go wrong. You're not good enough. You might have offended somebody somewhere once. I'm pretty sure you did. And, you know, like just that chatter, the daimoku of I'm not good enough is pretty persistent for a lot of people. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there may be people alive that don't have it, but I think most people have a certain amount of unhelpful, trying to be helpful possibly, but the inner critic is trying to protect us, but it's not helping. And daimoku just kind of I was going to say it drowns it out, but it more than drowns it out. It makes new neural pathways that are the exact opposite, that are just basically reinforcing this belief in yourself that you are more than good enough and actually you're amazing and there's never been anybody like you and there never will be again. And that's true of everybody. And it's just so wonderful to have a thing that does that. But that's why you have to keep doing it because the other stuff is persistent. It's, <laughs> it likes to come back. Totally. And have you ever felt, I mean... I've for a long time felt a bit like a, especially when you have a responsibility um, as a sort of Buddhist leader. And I'm putting that in inverted commas because I don't know if a Buddhist leader really describes what a Buddhist leader is in the SDI. You don't have to have a qualification and you don't, and you're not ever prepared. It's just about really supporting other people in their Buddhist practice to the best of your capacity and having a heart that wants to do that. Um, Ever since I've taken on that role, which was, you know, I became district leader of Hackney Central. And then six months later, I think I became chapter leader. I think I've been doing that for a really long time now. I think I might have been um, chapter leader for about three and a half years. And you feel like a failed Buddhist quite often when you get all this negativity come back into your head. And it's taken me a really long time to realise that being happy, even though you can read as much as you like, you can study as much as you like, one day you've got to keep studying it because suddenly it makes sense in your heart and not just the words coming out of your mouth. Um, That being a happy, positive person does not mean that you're not sad and angry and, and have all the same emotions as any other human being and also that you're not susceptible to this incredibly strong social ideals of what it is to be 
a woman, what it is to be a, you know, a British person, what it is to be living in London, all of these living in this age and all these things. And quite often chanting, I am enough as I am, is really contradictory to all of those storylines which we're fed are a valuable thing. So like making money, having a specific job, being on a career path, progressing in that career path, having a baby, getting married, being in a relationship, all of these things which we are told through images, through media, through our friends, through what everybody else believes, through, you know, people can just say something, they'll just be having a normal conversation and suddenly they'll drop something in. Well, I don't know, quite often it's with my friendship group at the moment, you know, it's all very baby, baby. And people will be like, well, are you focusing on your career? I've got a new job and my boss keeps asking me, so are you focusing on your family now? And then she was like, oh, you're going to focus on being a gardener. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) and I've really come to, this is a bit waffly, but I've really come recently because of so much study. And that honestly is why I'm chanting a lot. I'm studying a lot. I am supporting a lot and it works. I am now realizing that me as a successful and worthy person is not a bunch of words written down on a piece of paper, as in, I have achieved this, I am doing this, what next year I'll be able to do this. It is just you right now. And that's sort of huge. And this is from a point where, you know, this time last year, everything or a bit a bit before everything was going really really well as in I was going to have a baby my show was picked up by Battersea Arts Centre had a residency there I was rewriting the show to be a pregnant woman then I would rewrite it to be you know with a baby it was all about all of this stuff and then that orc I had a miscarriage then the pandemic happened all of this stuff everything collapsed so for me to now be like as a woman without a baby and not necessarily might not be able to have a baby and I'm working in a little art shop and I have a couple of gardening jobs um but I'm probably the happiest I've ever been and that doesn't make sense compared to the list of my success does that make any sense that's a really long-winded way of saying that it makes total sense because you know reality is a thought or a feeling in a moment and right now how you feel is that you are you're more than enough and you're just actually present in your life and not kind of thinking what's next and you know where am I it's that's Buddhahood is just that feeling of just being alive itself is is a total joy and I think you realize as well especially from being in meetings where people are sharing in the way that you just did. If I'm if I like someone and think they're brilliant, I never think, God, they've got a show on at the Battersea Arts Centre. <laughs> <laughs> they're amazing. No. I really want to go and sit next to them. <laughs> you know, and I really remember a friend of mine passed away this year, but I remember seeing them at a at a wedding about seven or eight years ago and um hadn't seen them for ages. And I was like, um, how you doing? And they went, um, yeah, I'm really good. I'm doing quite a lot of whittling at the moment. And um, and then they talked really, you know, just really sort of gently about these spoons that they were whittling. And um, I was so charmed. I just wanted to listen to them. And they were really passionate. They weren't showing off. They weren't, they were just, that's the thing they were doing. They were really enjoying it. They had nothing to prove. 
And um, they weren't a Buddhist, but I remember it really stuck with me. And I was just like, that level of just absolutely in your skin, this is the thing I'm doing. That's really inspiring. And that's exactly what you've just described. You know, the sort of simplicity of this moment. But it's taken like effort. It has taken effort. And I think that's fine because, um, you know, it's the narratives that are instilled in us are really ingrained and they're really deep. And we are doing something, what we do, that sounds a bit. Sometimes it feels like Buddhism is counter what uh, what a lot in the world well, a lot of people sometimes buddhism is counter what a lot of people in the world are doing does that make sense mm-hmm. and it I feels mean, like effort to not fall into the same thought patterns do you mean in terms of sort of material or sort of societal success or do I it's success right yeah the ideas around what is successful and the idea that because being, I think, I think I, I think I, I struggle. Sometimes I feel like me saying that, me announcing, oh, I'm really happy, even though these are none of my plans, mm. could sound like, because I like to second guess what other people think about me all the time. <laughs> oh, really? None of us oh. have ever done that. <laughs> I mean, it's a great habit. It definitely really helps you to be happy, that kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> But it could sound like you've given up. Do you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. that's not it either. I totally know that there there are no boundaries and there's no sort of, I will put my all into loads of different things and I have other plans which are happening and might not happen. But it's not about, that. that's it, sorry. I need to try and work out what I'm trying to say. Sometimes I confuse absolute happiness not relative happiness, absolute happiness with, I do think, am I just giving up on that determination? Am I just giving up on that dream? Am I, is this a cop out? And actually it's that, then you have to think about this isn't, this isn't a cop out. I don't know. Do you know? Ah, I'm, I'm trying yeah, to, yeah, I, I know. I, I, I know. Sorry, yeah, sorry. No, I, I thought about this so much over the years of practicing as well. And I think there's this, it felt to me like there was um, some kind of conflict between the notion of acceptance of kind of like accepting who you are and where you are and sort of drilling right here. That's where the water is, you know, that, that whole concept. And there's, as you, you know, there is a lot of rhetoric in the SGI about, you know, believing in your infinite potential and just pushing yourself more and more and more. And I always sort of thought, well, which is it then? Like, it can't be both. And actually, it's very hard to describe, but it, it sort of is both in that, you know, that you can totally believe that you have every right to have in amazing dreams for yourself, you know, and crucially that they're part of achieving Kozen Rufu, which for those who don't know, you know, it just means a world where everybody is respected and treated with dignity. Um, so there's that, but then there's also... But in this moment, if you're just doing the washing up, you're really doing the washing up and you're really enjoying the fact that you live with these people and you're grateful for everything you've got. It's that sort of balance, isn't it, between really liking where you are, but also thinking that you deserve whatever else it is that you want. I actually got guidance on this. And I think what you're and, and actually you've exemplified this. It's wisdom. 
we chant for wisdom and through your wisdom, you know what the, the sort of tension is between these two concepts, the concepts of being completely happy in this moment, not needing anything, as opposed to having really powerful determinations for your life and for the life of those around you. I think it's the, it's the, the wiser you get, the better you understand the sort of tension between those two things. Absolutely. It's going, I would like to publish my book but I can also be happy whilst my book is unpublished and if my book is never published. <laughs> yeah, that's the old attachment, isn't it? The old attachment conundrum. I, I think you summed it up perfectly and I've now become inarticulate because um, I have a small visitor. Um, but mm. um, thank you so much, Naomi. I feel like it's thank such a you. shame we have to wrap up. And, um, and thank you for your brilliant... Um, honesty oh, yeah it's so good I thank you so much for what you shared about what you've been through in the last year it's it means so much to people because I, I know a couple of other people who've who've had miscarriages recently and I think it's so profoundly helpful to to just have people share that they're also going through that because it's it's huge oh and it is huge and it was one of the most it's very very I was so, so sad. It's real grief and it took, it, yeah, it was very, very difficult and I don't want to like sort of play it down by saying, I'm super happy now. It was so difficult and I could not, I was so grateful. This is just going to sound like an SGI plug. I have never been more grateful for the SGI and my community than last year. And I mean, honestly, they were just, it was, um, I felt incredibly fortunate to have that many people really care and listen. That's it, really. Yeah. So lucky. So lucky to have a practice where, you know, not only you've got something to do every day with your pain, but also other people that care about you that are doing the same thing and chanting for you. I have a feeling that... We're going to want to talk to you again. There's, there's so much more, but thank you. Thanks for listening. We've already thanked Naomi, so all that remains is to thank Kerry Sheldrick for getting us started, Tash Wilcox for the artwork, Barclay Bandon and Grim Grim for the music, and you for listening. <laughs>